Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. I am super charged up for the show today and the tremendous opportunity of the movement that not my guest is at the forefront of, one that evolves capitalism to serve society more broadly. Armed with an undergraduate engineering degree and an MBA, he entered business in the early days of Silicon Valley. Founding four companies, including Drugstore.com and Good Technology, he's also worked at several venture capital firms and honed his skill in investing in companies and helping them grow. In 2006, he had a bit of an epiphany, which we'll learn more about, and ever since has been impassioned about supporting purpose-driven leaders with the grit and resourcefulness to build and scale private, profitable, enduring, and market-leading businesses that make a dent in the universe. Can't wait to learn more. I'm thrilled to introduce the CEO and founder of the Tugboat Group, Dave Wharton. Dave, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Molly, thank you. Uh, and thanks for that very kind introduction. Well, you know, it's, it's true. So uh, you're, you're welcome. And I, I, I do make a practice of trying to tell the truth, my friend. <laughs> so I am I'm very grateful for your carving out time today. I'm very, very, very keen for listeners to hear about the whole evergreen leaders, evergreen companies. Before we go there, please help folks get to know you a bit. Take us through the highs and lows of your own journey. Yeah, happy to. Happy to. Um, how far back would you like me to start, Molly? Hey, when the, 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 I think the early formative family uh, family times are uh, are really worth going through. Sure, sure. So I was uh, I was raised in Virginia, uh, Richmond, Virginia, and then Fairfax, Virginia. And some of the probably most formative things of that childhood is it grew up in a kind of middle class family. Uh, my father uh, came off a farming family in Arkansas, and it was. Um, you know, it was a, it was a good life. It was a comfortable life. I had an older brother, younger sister, uh, but it was a very interesting time in Richmond, Virginia, because it was the early '70s, and they had just started the desegregation of the schools. And so, one of my uh, most vivid memories and important memories is uh, being in a classroom where I was the only white male in the class for a couple of years, and uh, my friends uh, were all black students. And uh, at the time, it didn't seem so unique to me. I think today it'd probably be quite unique, but it was a, a really important thing for me to develop relationships as a young kid with folks that were, uh, you could say, arguably very different with, from me, but the truth was there was a lot of similarities too. Wow. Then, that is the first time I've heard that. And thank you for sharing that. Um, I am kind of curious, were you, did you feel, you mentioned you didn't feel standing out at all. I mean, was oh, that really... Uh, I guess I did stand out quite a bit. And, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, I had some very dear uh, black friends and they, like all normal friends, just played in the yard together, we were in class together. And then I had a few uh, folks that just didn't like me because I was the one white kid in the class. And that, and that was the tough part, you know, just trying to understand why, why there was that energy towards me. Um, and, and I get it now, but back then it was probably a little more confusing. Hmm. Okay, go on. School? Sure. So, um, 
So we ended up moving to Santa Rosa, California when I was 13 years old. And that uh, was kind of a sleepier time back then. It was uh, right around the time that the wine industry was starting to be recognized in that area. So it felt fairly rural and, and, and made for a really nice uh, kind of, uh, let's say, middle school, high school years. You know, played sports, uh, was involved in uh you know, a lot of activities, student government. I was valedictorian of the school. I found school quite easy. So that was kind of nice. But probably the most important thing that happened in those years is that uh, my father kind of sat me down and said, look, you know, things are kind of tight in the family. And, you know, you're going to really have to carry your weight um, uh, in going to college. And so you might have to prepare yourself to go to a, a community college for a couple of years and transfer. And to me, that was where I envisioned myself as the valedict- you know, future valedictorian of the school, you know, somebody playing a couple of varsity sports, student government. Um, so I wrote a letter to the largest employer in Sonoma County, and I basically asked if I could have a job as a janitor, uh, work in the cafeteria, be a gardener, whatever they would give me, because I assumed they would give me nothing that would have any skill in it. And I heard back a couple weeks later, um, it was Hewitt Packard, and they said, you know, we have a program called the SEED program. It's for students interested in engineering, and we bring you in, and you get to do manufacturing work. You get paired with an engineer and do a special project with them, and you'll get exposed to some of the management. And I was like, wow, that that sounds incredible, and it pays well. You know, it pays well relative to other jobs I could have gotten at the time. So I spent the next four summers working at Hewitt Packard at three different divisions, sitting alongside many of the manufacturing workers. And the, the gift of that was that many of these uh, manufacturing workers had been longtime HP employees, and some of them actually knew Dave and Bill, the two founders. And so I got to hear from them uh, some pretty incredible stories about how Dave and Bill felt about people and how much they cared about people and how much they cared about, uh, you know, it didn't matter if you were a janitor or you're manufacturing, that you know, you're important to the organization. And uh, it, it, it has made a very important lasting impression on me about what it feels like to be in an environment where there's that level of care towards the people. And, you know, at the same time, just incredible results. I mean, you know, HP, as you know, probably for its first 40 or 50 years is probably the most distinguished company in Silicon Valley. Um, and so that was kind of neat to see it. Unfortunately, I could, I, I, I saw some of the cracks that were happening as a public company, as a company that actually had transitioned from founder leadership. Uh, but again, just too young to really understand those cracks. But you know, a little bit of a disconnect, you know, for me on kind of what I was hearing and kind of what I was seeing. But uh, still a very, very powerful um, experience. And, and what a gift to, you know, be able to make good money, be able to finance substantially all of your uh, undergrad education, doing something you actually enjoyed quite a bit. Ah. That's unbelievable. You were a young person and you're like, okay, dad said I need to do something. I'm going to go do it. And you, you found your way there. That's unbelievable. I um, had met Lou Platt, um, who was a Cornellian, and I was so moved by his early story um, of his, uh, his wife had passed and, and just his epiphany of, of what it meant to lead. He says, look at you, you know, at the time, right? He's like, you're a guy, you have to have a wife to lead. Because, <laughs> you know, and it was really, so I had only heard kind of remotely about the HB culture and um, amazing that you were with people who knew, you know, quote, Dave and Bill. <laughs> right, yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was quite wonderful. And, and as you can imagine, the stories, I think the stories were all true. They were almost larger than life, though. And that, I think that's normal in storytelling, right? But it, it's very powerful. It tells you a lot about how culture is transmitted in organizations. 
and so the and so it sounds like the school when when you got to university was school pretty straightforward for you as well. I'm curious if you know yes. all of a sudden you realized it was hard or not. Yeah, you know it was it was harder than I expected initially. Then it got easier. Um, I went to Berkeley, um, and I picked Berkeley because it was the best school I could afford in California. I applied to Stanford also, did not get accepted, but I, I kind of applied half-heartedly because I knew there was no way I could actually put myself through Stanford. So I wasn't, I, I kind of wanted to do it, but I, I didn't really know if I could, if I got in, if I'd be able to go. So, you know, Berkeley, I think tuition back then was $700 a semester, right? You know, two wow. semesters, $1,500. Room and board was like $3,000, $3,500. So with the money I made at Hewitt Packer, plus a little bit of scholarships and some very modest loans, you know, it was quite affordable. And, you know, as you know, a wonderful engineering program. And my view going into it was that, you know, I wanted to make sure I had a solid job coming out of college. Um, and I knew engineering offered a lot of opportunities. And I also knew that, you know, I, I like to be challenged and pushed and um, I, I was very comfortable with math and science. And so it just, it just felt like the right thing to do. And, um, you know, and, and it was tough from the standpoint of, I just had to take an advanced math class very early. And it's the first time where I got uh, the test results back. And I think I got a 20 out of a hundred on a midterm test. And the only relief I got was that I was median to the group. <laughs> so, uh, but a gentleman sitting next to me who became a dear friend, I think got a 98 out of 100. The second closest was probably 30 or 31. And I suddenly had realized this is what a truly brilliant person looks like and sounds like. Uh, not, not looks, looks is not appropriate, but, you know, just sounds like. And, you know, boy, I thought I, I understood these concepts and I thought it was pretty facile with them. And, he was, you know, way beyond, and 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 I, and I loved it. And he became, as I said, a very dear friend, and we studied a lot together and stuff. And I gained a lot from that relationship. So fabulous. Was Berkeley super diverse? I mean, how did how was the pop student population? Yeah, it was a very diverse. And I think at the time it was during the apartheid, uh, mm-hmm. anti-apartheid movement. So you know, the kind of the structures built in the middle of campus, and so that was happening. And uh, you know, and, you know, it, it had that Berkeley feel, right? A little bit of a rebel feel, uh, feel to it. Um, but, you know, I was pretty busy with, with school. I was pretty busy. I got involved in the fraternity. I uh, took a PE class in my first semester. It was Taekwondo and fell in love with it and ended up joining the club team and competing in their national championships uh, three years later. And so it was, um, it was, that was, I had a lot going on and I worked, I did do a little bit of part-time work too. So it kept me pretty busy uh, just on like those core things. Uh, I can't imagine you. I would not have guessed Taekwondo. I guess I could actually see that now that you say it, but um, that's, that's pretty uh, early days, you know, for you to get out there and, um, and practice that. Um, jobs and, and I, well, I guess, was anything hard for you at school? Uh, you know, what was probably hard is uh, just feeling a little bit kind of, uh, you know, paycheck to paycheck. You know, while I had some money, I didn't have a lot. And so there'd be times in which, you know, I barely make it to uh, kind of, let's call it the next period where I'd be like, wow, I've got a couple bucks left, you know, time to go buy some cheap pizza. Right. And I, I think it's a pretty normal college experience for a lot of middle-class kids, but I did have friends that were quite wealthy and, you know, they'd, they'd head off on a ski trip or they would be going to go golfing for a long weekend. And, you know, I didn't have golf clubs and I didn't have skis, you know, I couldn't 
I really didn't think I could afford something like a lift ticket. So that just felt, you know, a bit awkward, but, you know, it, in some ways it probably motivated me to say, look, someday I would like to have those things and at least have the resources to buy those things. Yeah. So how did you, um, you know, you're so smartly practical, right, about uh, creating, getting an engineering background. And so what was it like after you left university? Yeah, so I was, uh, I was kind of heading in the direction of, you know, Ford, GE, Exxon, all the major uh, uh, people who come on campus to hire mechanical engineers. Um, but I'd come across a book by Tom Peters. It's called In Search of Excellence. I don't remember how I came across it, but I read it. And as you may know, if you've read the book, that HP plays a central uh, role in that book. It was really the exemplar of all the companies, the exemplar that Tom points to the most. And I'd worked at HP, and so I connected with that. And I got really intrigued by this idea of excellence in companies. And at the same time, uh, this is kind of in the 1997, 98 timeframe, there was that sense that Japan had really figured it out. I believe they had bought the Rockefeller Center. They just bought Pebble Beach. Um, They were acquiring a lot of assets in America. They were developing a big chunk of Hawaii. And some people kind of felt like we'd missed our step, right? Our auto manufacturers had not been delivering great cars and the Japanese had, right? They'd started off very much disrupting from below and getting better and better cars. And and there was that just kind of sense that, you know, can America get its footing back? And so I was really, I was motivated by that. Like I want to be part of getting that footing back. And I, you know, love engineering, love manufacturing, you know, we'll see where this takes me. And um, so again, it felt like that perhaps I'll head to Ford maybe or uh, General Electric. And uh, and I bumped into an old friend on campus. She graduated a little bit earlier than me and she pulled me aside and she knew that I had this book in search of excellence. And I was always kind of talking this way. And she said, you know, Dave, have you figured out your career yet? And I said, I haven't. And I told her I was thinking, she goes, have you heard of Bain & Company? I said, no, no, I I haven't. She said, it's a really interesting organization that does strategy consulting, has an office in San Francisco with, you know, 60, 70 employees. I work there. I love it. I love the culture. I love the people. I love the energy. I love the kind of the work we're asked to do for the clients. Would you want to check it out? And so she made an introduction there and they ended up hiring me off cycle. They had a pretty rigid time frame back then when they recruited. It was once a year and um, they hired me off cycle and I ended up uh, taking a little break and then uh, joining Bain and kind of diving into that. Wow. That's super fun because that early... Um, I, I could imagine kid at a candy store, like just all this range of projects um, and so many to learn from. Do, would you say, you know, I, uh, that the HP experience from a, what would I say, move through space, right? The social interactions of work. D- did you feel like you were really kind of ahead of the curve equipped with how to deal with work? I, 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 I um in some ways, yes, right? I think I was much more comfortable in manufacturing environments. And I had, I kind of asked the main partners to steer me towards manufacturing. I ended up working on insurance and manufacturing. Uh, but those environments I felt very comfortable in immediately and the concepts and the ideas and stuff like that. So I think in some ways that was an accelerator. From kind of a maturation standpoint of dealing uh, well with very senior executives, I had a lot to learn. Um, I remember walking in and sitting down with, I think at the time was the CIO of this insurance firm, a very, very large insurance firm. And I was supposed to interview him uh, related to a small business insurance product offering that we were helping them do strategy work on. And I could tell the guy was disgusted to be spending time with me. Like, who is this punk 
sitting here in a suit and a tie with his list of questions. And I had to kind of win him over and get back to the task at hand. And he ended up supporting me in it, which was good. But, you know, um, part was maturity and part was just, you know, it's hard to overcome the fact that you look like a 21-year-old kid (laughs) or 22-year-old kid when you're sitting down with somebody who's probably in his 50s and had a very distinguished career. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, you know, fast forward, you, you've done so many entrepreneurial things. So just share with us how you, you know, navigated, you know, opportunities and created opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So when uh, I worked at Bain for a couple of years, and uh, as I said, really enjoyed the work and the people, a lot of respect for their culture. Um, and many of my friends, the natural thing after doing two or three years of Bain is to go to business school. Um, and I didn't really feel ready for business school. And I, I wanted to work more. I wanted to kind of dive in deeper. And I got exposed to some of these startup ideas uh, at Bain from people kind of in that community. Uh, also, when I was in high school working at HP, two of my good friends, fathers were both entrepreneurs. And I spent time with them and they were very generous and you know, showing me their facilities, telling me a little bit about their businesses, why they enjoyed the freedom of being an entrepreneur. And one of them kind of had just said, um, and playing the seat, you know, Dave, you have to have equity in something someday. Otherwise, you're always going to be an employee, always working for a paycheck. And he, like, what do you mean by equity? He goes, you got to own something, at least a piece of something, something. And he goes, I own all of this. Um, and that's very important to me. So I'm not working for somebody else. And I have something that's got real value, real enduring value. Um, and so I was always, this, this idea, I guess, had been planted in my head in high school and had been a little bit more developed at Bain. And then the opportunity arose where one of uh, my friends from Santa Rosa, his father was struggling uh, with some uh, issues with his bank. And uh, I think he just kind of, res- my friend respected me as kind of a thinker and knew my interest around business and knew I was at Bain. So asked if I'd come up and spend a little time with them. And as I started looking at this, I realized that the problem they were facing felt to me that they were just getting poor counsel. It just didn't make sense to me. So I was pretty resourceful. And so I reached out the, the person who originally authored the tax bill that was associated with uh, a non-taxable spinoff of a company and spoke to him. And he said, no, they, the counsel of the company is getting is incorrect. This could be a non-taxable split off. This is how you do it. I'll write an opinion paper on this on behalf of the company. And it kind of blew away uh, this gentleman's father, who was the owner and president of the business that I kind of had found this resolution for him because it was, it was a pretty bad situation. It was going to cause a tax event that he couldn't afford to pay. And that led to a conversation where he said, look, would you be interested in helping me? I'm going to, part of this taxable thing, I need to spin off this division that has this industrial CO2 laser idea and, you know, perhaps you can help me. And so I kind of, I ended up, took a while to figure this out, but I ended up joining him, becoming general manager of that little spinoff, which is kind of a start off spinoff and then help develop that into a profitable company with 65 employees, partnering with Honda Motors, making the lasers for us, um, selling them in Europe. I traveled throughout Europe, Japan, um, initially enough, not a lot in the United States, because we saw much stronger interest in Europe and Japan for the lasers at the time. And uh, it was kind of my first real entrepreneurial experience. Oh, that is so cool. That's yeah, pretty fun. How then, did you have that way? Because how did you get, you just looked at this, you, you reached out to the guy who authored a tax bill. I mean, seriously, that's, that's really forensics sleuthing. Yeah, you know, it's, it was kind of a can-do attitude I learned at Bain. The Bain office in San Francisco at the time was extremely entrepreneurial, much more than I think than any other office. 
And it's just, that's just what you do, right? You just figure it out. And I just, well, why not? I mean, what's the worst thing to do? Say, no, I'm not going to talk to you. Um, so, and that, and that person ended up becoming a friend also, which was interesting and ended up providing counsel to me on an ongoing basis to when I was uh, running the laser company. So that was pretty fun. Uh, then after that, I, uh, we ended up, he, the founder and I had a disagreement about the relationship with Honda and uh, my strong interest in raising outside capital to further grow the business because I saw multiple products we could introduce to the market that would complement the core product. And he was more conservative about this. And, um, and ultimately, I, uh, again, I, I didn't have the maturity to understand or figure out how to influence them because I could probably today I could have done a much better job, right? <laughs> Back when I didn't, I just got frustrated, right? He got frustrated and well, He's a lot older than me and he owned most of the company. So <laughs> I was kind of given the invitation to move on. And it's a longer story, but the bottom line is I did move on. And um, again, in the world of serendipity and I guess women in my life, I was flying to a wedding in Washington, D.C. And on the plane saw a high school friend, a woman who was in the grade ahead of me and ended up kind of switching seats with somebody and sat and we talked a little bit. And she started talking to me about venture capital. And um, her husband worked at a venture capital firm. And I know much about that. And I said, oh, not, not much. And I said, well, they're actually looking for an associate to help the soon-to-be-retiring founding partner just kind of in this last year, last couple of year transition. Uh, so it's probably just be a 12-month job. I said, well, that's perfect because I think I'm ready to go to business school and it gives me time to get the applications in and maybe I could support this gentleman for a year. So that ended up panning out and ended up joining Interwest Partners for a year, working for a gentleman named Wally Hawley, who was one of the early venture capitalists. And um, we didn't do a lot of investing activities, the truth, but we did a lot of talking. <laughs> and that was a real gift to me. I like to have a cup of coffee with me every morning to kind of start the day and just kind of share some of his stories and experiences. He was very generous about that. So it was a very active mentoring relationship for about a year. And then I headed off to Stanford Business School. Oh, perfect. And so as you got to Stanford, did you have a sense of like why you were getting this and what you were going to do after? Or were you still kind of... No, it's very clear I was going to start a company, and I wanted to have the opportunity to build something, a tech company uh, in uh, similar to Hewlett Packard with similar values. I wasn't sure what the product would be, but um, I was very excited about that idea and the idea of it not being, uh, even though I had a small ownership stake in the laser company, at least on a temporary basis, not being in that situation again, where I would actually be able to make more of the calls, more of the decisions. And I felt I was able to do in the other organization. And so I, I went to Stanford with the intention of really sharpening my understanding of what uh, makes for a great entrepreneur. Um, and also to start developing some ideas of where I might want to start a company. And uh, that kind of led me to working, uh, well, I shouldn't say led to that. I'd only been there for about a month at school and I got a call from John Doerr's office at Kleiner Perkins and um, it was his assistant. And she said that John would like to meet with you. And funny enough, um, at that point, John was already becoming a rock star. He had taken Netscape public in August of 1995. This was probably October of 95. And as you probably recall, that was a very big deal when Netscape went public. And mm -hmm. so I first assumed this was one of my business school, new, new business school classmate friends pranking me. <laughs> so I called the main line back at Kleiner Perkins and said, look, could I speak to you know so-and-so? And they connected me. And I said, look, I just stayed warden. I just want to confirm I am meeting with John Doerr next week. Just, Dave, we just confirmed that five minutes ago. I said, okay, great. We're, we're in great shape. Um, so when I met with John, it was supposed to be like a 30-minute meeting. We ended up sitting there and talking for a couple of hours. And that led him to uh, 
pretty short after asking if I can work for him for the summer of business school. Um, and I decided, and frankly, a couple of his partners counseled me this, that um, it would be better to go work at a company for the summer, a tech company, a larger one that's well-run, uh, then come in and try to be an associate at a venture firm for the summer. There's just not that much that really happens. So I did, and I was picking between Netscape and Cisco, which were probably two of the hottest high-growth um, startups in Silicon Valley at the time. And John leaned me towards Netscape. He said, look, I'm on the board of directors. I'd like to stay in touch with you. I want to introduce you to Mark Andreessen and Jim Barksdale and Eric Kahn and some of these key players, Roberta Katz, um, and then it's just a way for us to keep in touch. I went and worked at Netscape, um, worked on a few different projects. And interestingly enough, uh, I was handed a project, you know, and again, I think I'm pretty good at seeing opportunity, um, but uh, a lot of people did not want to work on the e-commerce server, so it was called, because the real action and excitement was around the web server, which is for publishing content. As you might remember, they had a web server, had the client browser, and that was kind of how, kind of the core of the what they provided. And the e-commerce server was, wasn't getting a lot of attention, so I was kind of thrown on it with a couple of engineers, one of the product manager, and I didn't do a lot. There's some minor improvements we made to it, but more importantly, it gave me a chance to meet with a number of entrepreneurs that had come to Netscape to talk about the issues they were having with the e-commerce server as they were trying to build their e-commerce companies. And that made it very clear to me that this was a huge deal. E-commerce was going to be huge. I mean, way beyond what people were perceiving, at least at Netscape. Um, and so I made a market map of all the industries I could think of that could be disrupted by e-commerce. And then I had kind of a 12-point category uh, criteria, and I weighted each of those sectors by that criteria and then scored them and then kind of looked at the scores and came up with four or five areas I thought would be really interesting for a potentially starting an e-commerce company. Uh, and one of those was the drugstore area. And in particular, the idea of monthly fulfillment of prescription and over-the-counter drugs, as well as all the other things you might buy in the drugstore. So I started putting together the business plan for that in the second year of business school. And that's when John Doerr reached out to me again and wanted to get back in touch. And long story short, ended up offering me the job to become his associate partner at Kleiner Perkins for the next two years. And, uh, um, and he, I, I was a little bit, I guess, on the fence. I was enthusiastic about the idea of working for John, but I also was kind of excited about the idea of starting a company because that's why I went to business school. And then John does what he does so incredibly well is he said, look, I'm just going to give you an offer you can't refuse. You'll become an associate partner working with me at Kleiner Perkins. I want you to dedicate substantially all your time to me and all the investments we're looking at and working on. And you can incubate drugstore.com here at Kleiner Perkins too. Um, you won't be able to be the founder of it. You won't be able to work full-time on it, uh, but I'll get behind it with, uh, I'll probably grab Brooke Byers, who is the head of the healthcare practice, and you know, we'll, we'll see if we can do something here. And we did that. Um, and so while I, you know, I guess I am the founder of Dogeshore from that standpoint, uh, I was kind of a, a silent founder. You know, we ended up recruiting a gentleman named Jed Smith, or I did uh, kind of really get the thing moving, and he did a nice job of that. And we recruited Peter Newport, one of the top execs under Bill Gates, to run the firm. And in doing that, he moved it up to Seattle, and that's kind of when my participation really uh, uh, went down a lot. Uh, but Kleiner got behind it, supported it. John Brooke went on the board. I continued to provide kind of distant support, and that would, in some ways, it's kind of the second startup. Wow. How, so, I mean, these are just, you know, the brightest of lights in, in venture capital. How did John Doerr find out about you? I mean, who, how, like, that's, oh, John Doerr wants to talk to you. That does not happen. 
I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know if he just for fun or what. He wouldn't tell me. He wouldn't tell you? No. Maybe he had a, he had a really protected source inside the school, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. That's so amazing. Okay. So you were really... I mean, you know, and, and I, I know in your heart, you really run, wanted to run this company, but you're now you're steeped in, in the venture capital. So how did you, you know, how did you reconcile getting to what you really wanted to do in terms of running a company or did you stay on the sidelines? Um, no, so, we did, so the deal I kept with John was this. I said, look, if I come and do a really good job for you, will you support me in starting my own company? And he said, yes. He said, you do a really good job for me, kind of put this idea of starting a company on hold for at least two years. Then I, kind of the quid pro quo is, I will then help you hopefully build a really wonderful company on the back end of that couple of year experience. And the experience went from two years to three years and ended up um, basically kind of wrapping up in March of 2000, which you might recall is right when the dot-com crash started to happen. <laughs> so <Yeah>. interesting. <laughs> um, but by staying there for three years, you know, I ended up having an opportunity to work with Jeff Bezos and the early team at Amazon when they had, you know, 40 employees, 45 up in Seattle, a small little office. I ended up uh, being very helpful on the investment in some of the early work with Google when they had about 20 employees and they were still located on University Avenue in Palo Alto on the second floor. I helped write the business plan for AutoTrader and partner with the Cox um, Cox Company to bring that to life. Um, I ended up uh, bringing one of my classmates in as an investment opportunity decliner, a company called Blue Nile that was in the jewelry space, and just on and on and on. I mean, it was an incredible three-year experience, and it was it was demanding. I mean, I, I was working extremely long days and nights. I was working most weekends. Um, it was it was a lot, but at that point, I mean. I think the truth was Kleiner was the center of the venture capital universe and John Doerr was the center of the center. And, you know, I was his right-hand guy and it was very important that I make sure that he was uh, looking at the most interesting projects that he was, you know, we weren't missing anything important that he was getting the support he needed. And I felt a lot of responsibility to do that. And, you know, I was able to do a pretty good job for him. Uh, fabulous. Super fabulous. Okay. So continue. Yeah, so then, you know, that March time frame came around and I started talking to John said, John, at some point I do need to do this <laughs> because, you know, it, it's, I really enjoyed working at Kleiner and really enjoyed the partner. So it was, it was um, in some ways it was hard because I didn't want to leave that experience because I was, you know, becoming quite effective and really working well with the, John and the partners and the companies. But I really was worried that if I didn't do this, if I didn't try to create my HP, then I might someday look back and say, look, you know, what, what if, you know, what if I had, you know, I, I took the path of just being a venture capitalist. And so um, came up with a couple of different ideas, better those with a partnership. One in particular kind of rose to the top, which was to be a sister company to Handspring, which was the founding team of the Palm Company, if you remember that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So they'd start Handspring, and their differentiation was they had this port on the back of the PDA that allowed you to plug in little modules, little electronic modules that could do different things. And so I wanted to become like their primary partner for those plugins. And there was a lot of belief, both at Kleiner and, of course, with the founders of Handspring, that this was going to be a very big market. And the area of greatest interest to me was wireless messaging. Like, how do I take email and contacts and calendar and task and have that synchronized 24-7 on a device? Now, today that happens on your phone. Back then, there was no way to do that. I mean, what people had back then was pagers, 
or they had flip phones, but you didn't have a continuously synchronizing device that kind of brought those elements to you. And so, um, so I started uh, the company initially as kind of, uh, say, a potpourri of plug-in modules and very quickly narrowed in on this idea of doing something that would basically wirelessly connect that PDA uh, with all of these resources you normally just have on your desktop. And uh, raised a lot of money, about $160 million to do that. Um, and uh, ended up bringing in a friend as CEO, moved to chairman. Uh, uh, the first product we did launch, I should say, was an MP3 player, uh, about the size of a matchbox, a plug in back, extremely high fidelity uh, and really cool. It only held 20 songs. And I learned later from my friend, Tony Fidel, who worked on the iPod with Steve Jobs, that they'd actually gotten our device, taken it apart and said, this someday will be um, kind of what, will be the ideal music thing, but it'll be uh, something kind of clip on your shirt, <laughs> like think of the Nano, yeah. um, clip on your shirt. But right now, 20 songs is not enough. What people want is a thousand songs. And that's why they went to Seagate and said, look, you got to build a special disk drive for us. It can hold a thousand songs. And so Steve was very clear that that was the, that was the tipping point thing was somebody carrying their entire music library. And that's why he's Steve Jobs and I'm not. songs is not enough. Good try, Dave. <laughs> yeah. You know, one album is not enough. Uh, so, but that, uh, so we did, we launched that. Then we uh, went back to work and then uh, really under leadership of Danny Shader, who was the CEO and John Frund, who was the VP of engineering kind of developed both a wireless device called the G100, uh, the software that run um, in the data center, the software that would actually run at the carrier, the software that run on your desktop. I mean, there's a lot of software, a lot of connectivity, uh, additional hardware, very, very complicated uh, solution, uh, but was able to successfully bring that to market. And eventually that company was sold uh, for about a half a billion dollars to Motorola back when that was actually a pretty big number. So pretty good accomplishment. I, I'm just chuckling. This is just like a walk down memory lane. Really, I remember flip phones and pagers. I'm just so... That's so great. Okay, so... The, <laughs> oh my gosh! So amazing. So, um, so I let's get to the. Maybe I'm looking track of time. Sure. Get us to the evergreen and the epiphany, and because it's just so, it's even richer, folks, than, than what we've heard already about what's yeah. in the future. Yeah. So one of the the women who I had met at Kleiner Perkins, which was at Stanford Business School, um, I had asked her to pull out of a business school. Uh, business plan competition and come up to Kleiner Perkins. And we ended up funding her, helping her raise $25 million and kind of put her company together. That company, um, its timing was a little poor because it was not too far before the dot-com crash and ended up being sold and sold a couple of times. And then she came back to me in 2005. And this is right when I was starting my own venture capital firm, Tugboat Ventures. And she said, you know, Dave, I really liked you and your partners at Kleiner Perkins. I hate your model. And I was like, I, I was kind of defensive, you know, here I'm starting my own venture fund. She's telling me she hates the model. <laughs> and uh, we kind of talked about it. And, uh, and it's been written about in Inc. Magazine. Bo Burlingham did a wonderful article about this kind of story. Um, but long story short, she planted the seed in my head that, you know, you can build meaningful companies, big companies, purpose-driven companies, if you extend the time frame 
to decades, not years. And you can do that without raising uh, venture capital. If you raise venture capital, ultimately you're gonna have to be sold or taken public. You'll be transacted one way or the other. That's the model. And she didn't want to be transacted again. She wanted to build something that'd be a legacy business that maybe one of her daughters would run someday. And that just wasn't something I was very familiar with. But the seed was planted. And then in 2012, when I was trying to decide whether I wanted to continue uh, working in the venture industry with a third fund for Tugboat Ventures or do something different. And every time you raise a fund, you're basically making another 12, 15 year commitment. So that would have been the rest of my real professional career. Yeah. And I wasn't there. I, I Some of my LPs weren't there and I wasn't there. I just, things had changed a lot and it'd be a different conversation, but th- things had changed a lot in the venture industries from the time I got into it in 1994 at West. And by then, um, and some of those things were positive and some of those things quite negative. And but for me, it was feeling less and less like a fit. And my family had already moved up to Idaho. And so I was commuting. And so that was part of what was going on too. Um, but I decided I wanted to continue to find a way to serve really exceptional entrepreneurs. And I was moved by the idea of, by the example of a couple um, people, including Jessica, that, you know, are there entrepreneurs out there that are building companies they want to last a hundred years, they want to be purpose-driven, they want to make a difference in the lives of the people, but unlike HP, they have no plan to ever go public or be sold. Because I think that's really what ruined HP. At the end of the day, becoming a public company planted the seeds of its destruction over a couple of decade period. Um, and uh, I, I had come to understand uh, both through venture capital and private equity and my entrepreneurial experience, ownership is critical and it's strategic and it's underappreciated its role um, in really what the long-term outcomes of these companies are. So that so I was looking for these people and I started asking my network, you know, who do you know, who do you know? And I kind of had these characteristics and I started meeting people slowly and a little bit more quickly. And um, it was really refreshing. I mean, typically the beginning of the conversation would be something like, let me tell you about my culture or let me tell you about my people or let me tell you about the difference I'm making in the world versus the typical entrepreneur I meet that was in the venture capital ecosystem, which would be, here's my value proposition and here's what I think I'm being worth at exit, right? It was just... <clears throat> You know, very technical, and the other was very kind of emotional and and, and people oriented. And so, I started really seeing a pattern in these conversations. I saw some common traits to these, and I realized, you know, these aren't family businesses, these aren't lifestyle businesses, these aren't, um, you know, just bootstrap businesses. These are something different. They they represent a different category of business that doesn't really have a name. And that's when I started throwing around the name Evergreen Company. I said, you know, I kind of feel like you guys are evergreen companies. You know, you're, you plan to be around for a very long time. You're, what, you're designed to weather different seasons. And, you know, seasons could include great depressions and wars, right? Um, and, um, you know, you're, 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 you're driven by something much deeper than wealth generation and public recognition. You know, you're, 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 it's some, there's something much deeper. There's something much more purpose-driven there. And so ultimately, after about 40, 50 of these interviews, I just wanted to, I, I was like, I, I want to get these people together. Because the thing I did hear from them is, you know, you know, Dave, if you're meeting other people like us, we'd love to meet them too. <laughs> I started making some connections, you know, like, you should meet so-and-so, you should meet so-and-so. So like, why don't you just bring them all together? So I hosted an event um, in Sun Valley, Idaho in October 2013. I think 42 of these kind of evergreen CEOs and thought leaders got together. I'd been going to the TED conference since about 1998, and I decided to make the morning session a little like a TED conference, 20-minute, no Q&A presentations. 
and then go do outdoor activities since we're up in this beautiful mountain town and then we'll celebrate at night. We'll do this over a couple of days and, um, and ask people when they got up on the stage to share something specific that I'd heard in one of my conversations with them over, over lunch or dinner that I thought the rest of the group would enjoy hearing. And it just ended up being a very powerful experience. And that night, that first Saturday night, I think it was, I couldn't sleep. I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. I mean, <gasps> these are the people I want to support. These are the people that society does not understand and definitely underappreciates. And they, they deserve better. They deserve much more recognition. They deserve much more credit for how important they are to our society. And it's like, you know, I, I know what I'm going to do now. And so that was the beginning of the Tugboat Institute. Uh, so tell folks, do a little sales pitch, you know, how, who's in there, give them an idea, some of the different kinds of companies, because I, you know, I, I'm on the, the, the sidewalks here telling people about it, because I just love the fact that people can be real, you know, and there's this, this the culture part is big, and you know, the whole say it skillfully is about being who you are and saying what needs to be said, and so it's just so, it's amazing what you're doing, and I, and I just, I'd love people to really kind of get it and see how they perhaps could support sure. it or find their way there. Yeah, so first, I think it's important to understand kind of what defines an evergreen company. And I've said it kind of loosely, but we figured out shortly after that first gathering kind of what defined it. And it's what we call the evergreen 7P principles. And it's purpose, it's perseverance, people first, profit, pace growth, pragmatic innovation, and private. They're going to be staying private forever. Um, and so we kind of hung that up on a flagpole and said, look, if if this is the way you run your business, if this is, is aligned with your own values as a CEO or president, you know, you, you, you're an evergreen company and you might benefit from being part of our group and our community. And, uh, and, I, and I put it out there using a concept we use back at Bain called a straw man, which is, you know, it's, it's a hypothesis. And, you know, you give people the opportunity to kind of stick a bayonet at it and see if they could make it better or kill it, right? And, um, and it's held firm. And, it, and now it's been, what, eight years. And the seven Ps are, uh, are pretty well ingrained in what it means to be an evergreen company, uh, what it stands for. And as far as kind of the uh, the people who are evergreen companies, this has been fascinating to me because I figured it'd just be really heavily represented by a couple of industries and probably industries that VCs don't find attractive, right? It'd almost be by exclusion. And that has not been the case. I mean, there's evergreen companies in every industry you can come across. In fact, the third largest sector of evergreen companies in our membership is software, right? Ooh. Everything software is dominated by companies that are venture backed, right? Um, are going to be sold or taken public, but no, that's the third category for us. The first is CPG, consumer packaged goods companies. And, um, you know, and uh, they span in size, you know, at least in our membership from 10 million in revenue up to about 10 billion. The largest evergreen company I think is Cargill. That's about 110 billion a year, the largest family owned evergreen company in the country. Um, and they span an age from, uh, you know, technically you say in their first year because somebody has the intention, but I think it takes about 10 years to know if you really can build an evergreen company, you can stay independent. Um, they'll say roughly 10 years to the oldest in our membership is almost 290 years old. And, you know, think about it. Their early customer, one of the early customers, not early, probably 50 years into the company, one of the customers was Ben Franklin. So they made paper products that Ben Franklin used to print on, uh, which is pretty incredible. Today, 290 years later, one of the customers is Elon Musk. So the uh, membranes that go into the batteries that he uses in his cars is produced by the same company. So 
that to me is incredible. A 290-year-old company, still innovative, still relevant, uh, with these evergreen values, um, and doing, it's also one of the largest producers of N95 masks. They had a very big year last year also. So really kind of neat to see that. Um, so industries, uh, sizes, ages, um, it's a, you know, there's different companies run by women. There's every companies run by every kind of minority you can think of. Um, it's, you know, they're out there. And again, it's, it's something that, you know, and I know you've done this too, Molly, is as you've kind of come to appreciate what it means to be an evergreen company, I think you've seen more of them just even right around you, right? Beyond the one you serve on the board of. Oh, for sure. And it's, you know, I just feel so privileged to have had a chance to kind of get to know them. And, you know, I think we talked about this, the hope thing. I just want listeners to know that this is out there and, um, you know, to, to seek out um, places where you feel like you're you're contributing it just at a higher level. It doesn't mean the people are better. I'm just saying that it's it's an opportunity to really create a model and a way of working um, collectively, you know, for the greater good. Um, and you know, I, talk to folks. I think this notion of paced growth, people may not may think about that. I think a lot of folks is kind of growth for growth's sake, right? A growth for the stock price. And um, perhaps you could talk to folks about that one dimension and kind of strategically, you know, how that might manifest for people. Cause that idea of like slowing growth or, you know, not necessarily going for it when you could might be very foreign for some. Yeah. I think, you know, there's this kind of belief and, you know, I was part of this going back to the days with John Dora. We, 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 we is really John <laughs> pioneered mm-hmm. the idea of get big fast and we developed a playbook for it. And you saw it at Google, you saw it at Amazon. I mean, incredible playbook and it growth was everything. And, uh, you know, people like Reed Hoffman have evangelized Blitzkrieg growth, right? Which I think is kind of a derivative of what John pioneered first. Um, and, you know, you can get very attuned to that and think that is, that, that's it. That's what matters. But if, um, if uh, you think about it, if you were to have a company continually growing for 30, 40 years at a 20% growth rate, uh, the power of compounding really kicks in. That will be a very big company. You look at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, you know, that was founded by Andy Taylor's father, Jack, what, 70 years ago? I think that company, I'm guessing, I don't know exactly, $30 billion in revenue, something like that. Yeah. Never yeah. took outside capital. You know, uh, uh, father built it. Andy took it over. He built it. He just recently passed it to his daughter, Chrissy. I think he gave her the reins in January 2020. Thanks, Dad. Um, <laughs> Go at it, honey. <laughs> Go at it. That's yours. <laughs> Your point. Um, so, um, yeah, compounding is a very powerful thing. Uh, Warren Buffett understands this at Berkshire Hathaway. That's why he encourages when you find a really good company, don't ever sell it. You know, hold it forever, and he'll do that within his stock portfolio. He'll do it with the companies he acquires internally. But over long periods of time, sustained growth leads to very big companies. The other thing it does, too, it prevents you from outstripping your financial resources, which venture capital firms do every single year. And it, and it prevents you from outstripping your culture and your management team's capability to learn and grow and improve. And frankly, it also gives you room as the CEO, room to to grow and develop. Um, and it's why I think it's such a powerful path for women. I think it's such a powerful path for minorities because 
one, it gives them the space to grow and, and become more successful because we all have to learn. We all have to make mistakes as we become more effective leaders. Um, and they don't have to get permission from anybody except for customers, employees to exist. In the venture model of extremely high growth, you have to get permission over and over again from people who are providers of capital to even stay in business. And with every one of those fundraises, there's different requirements, changes in strategy. You know, there's different uh, ideas that are now more favorable than other ideas. You don't have to do that in Evergreen Company. Just keep aligned with your customers, keep them satisfied and happy. In fact, to use Jeff, Jeff Bezos' word, uh, keep them delighted and then do the same for your, your employees. And, you know, the profits are going to follow and you're going to do terrific. And over a very long period of time, you'll build a very meaningful company that's purpose-driven, treats its people well, serves its customers well. And you can just avoid a lot of the nonsense you might see in the capital markets. I'm in. I'm sold. I'm done. <laughs> so, so <laughs> the end. So, okay. So, um, do you encounter the headwinds, folks? Are they poo-poo it, or they're the naysayers? I mean, what would the critics, what would the critics say? You know, because it, you know, something like this, I could see perhaps people spinning it. You know, they're maybe they're intimidated by it, or they feel like they have something to lose. And you know, I'm kind of curious who's on the other side of this. Well, I'd say, you know, some of the criticisms are that uh, you, you're not going to win the market, right? You're going too slow. Uh, the truth is there's very few winner-take-all markets. Look at it, In-N-Out Hamburgers. When it got started at the same time at McDonald's, by the late 1960s, I think McDonald's had several thousand outlets. And I think In-N-Out had four, right? Well, In-N-Out today is a beautiful company. I think there's many, many people that love to be an owner of In-N-Out Hamburgers, right? Including Warren Buffett. Um, yeah, I guess McDonald's is a pretty interesting company too. But, you know, because they took an evergreen path, because they were purpose-driven, they really took care of their employees. They paid very well. They grew at a pace they felt comfortable with. You know, you have a wonderful company and it isn't either or. You, you have In-N-Out and you have McDonald's. But at the time, I am sure they were under tremendous pressure. Um, I don't think they felt any pressure because they, they were very clear on what their North Star was, but tremendous pressure to raise money, to grow faster and all that. And they chose not to. Uh, and they understood it. It was not a winner-take-all market. If they had happy customers and happy employees, the profits would follow and they would continue to grow. So that, 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 that would be one criticism, right? You're not going to be able to win the market. Um, I think another criticism would be is that you're always going to be capital starved. Well, on the other hand, uh, you know, a VC or a person, yeah, of course, capital starve. The flip side of that is that you understand the value of a buck, and you're very smart about pragmatic innovation and trying little experiments and seeing what works. And then when the ones that work, invest more in those. The ones that don't work, cut early instead of just raising a lot of money and throwing a lot of money and a lot of people and a lot of ideas. And so there's a real discipline around innovation that you have when you don't have kind of ready free capital, you know, hanging out in front of you. And I think lastly, you know, another one would be is you just, uh, they're just not that innovative, you know. How can a 150-year-old firm be innovative? How can a 290-year-old firm be innovative? And I remember reading a case study on this. I think it was out of Harvard. And it said the most innovative companies in the world are the ones that have been around the longest because it shows that they can adapt. It shows that they can survive great depressions and world wars and still be relevant. And that's what I've learned. You know, I came from a world of Silicon Valley, but we thought we were the most innovative people in the world and that everybody else was boring and slow, Right. 
I've seen incredibly innovative companies that I've been exposed to as evergreen companies. I've seen levels of uh, what you call Kaizen or continuous improvement in these organizations that I've never seen in Silicon Valley uh, because they've really empowered their employees with information and support to, you know, kind of to make improvements and make things even better. So um, it's really, uh, it's a really unfortunate assumption that because a company is older, it's not innovative. So how can folks, where can folks go to learn a little bit more? And then how do you, you know, I can imagine folks out there thinking, I want, like, I want my people, you know, I, you and I talked about this, the people who find each other think I'm the only crazy one. Chris is like, this, like I'm the only crazy guy. And then I discovered these people like, I am not the only crazy guy. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so I, so I mean, it's such a beautiful thing that you've created this amazing community. Yeah. I, you know, uh, tugboatinstitute.com. We have a lot of resources available there. We have the Evergreen Journal, which is a weekly newsletter, which is free to anybody that's interested in kind of following the ideas and people that are part of this uh, community and movement. Um, If you are CEO or president of uh, an Evergreen company and you'd like to be considered for being part of this community as a member, you know, we'd welcome that. You can send an email to share at tugboatinstitute.com. And then we're on social media. I think, uh, you know, on LinkedIn with Tugboat Institute, on Twitter with the Evergreen Journal. Um, Those would be the ideas I'd have right now, Molly. Yeah, that's fantastic. I really want to encourage folks. And, you know, like I've been, from the moment I met you, I just, you know, I was really game on with this. So I really appreciate your sharing um, this with folks. And, you know, I'm cheering for you all the way. Um, I guess to close, um, you know, you've shared a lot. And it really, you know, I'm just kind of giggly about this, this, amazing journey you're still on. And uh, I just asked today, what was it like for you to, to share your journey today? Oh, it, it, it was, uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time, Molly. And I, I'm grateful that you've shown this interest in the past. You've been very diligent about sticking with me and being patient to get together on, on this, on this uh, conversation together. And I'm very grateful for your support of Chris and his team because you know, these evergreen companies deserve it. They really do represent capital, capitalism at its best. And I hope that I'm successful and they're successful in building, and you're successful in building greater awareness about their importance. Yeah, that's, I, uh, I appreciate you. I thank you in a very big way for being part of the solution and you know how to reach me. Anything I can do to be helpful, don't ever hesitate. Uh, thanks so much, Dave, for joining us. You're very welcome. Oh, he's so amazing. Okay, folks, my thought for the week. Thank you, Dave. Evergreen leaders and their businesses are the opportunity for capitalism at its best. And that's a wrap. My thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Dave's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data 
and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 